A, B, C, D, or B, I, T, S. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wells on the back end production. Very grateful to have you with us here on the show today. I hope you are happy. I hope you are well. And I hope you are ready to learn a little bit more about literacy. Before we get to today's episode, though, I wanted to share with you a new book I've been really enjoying. It's called The Handbook on the Science of Early Literacy, and it's edited by Dr. Sonia Cabell, Dr. Susan Newman, and Dr. Nicole Patton-Terry. It includes 33 chapters written by various authors on a wide range of topics, all of it related to early literacy. I have found it to be a fantastic read so far, so it might be a book that you want to take a look at and, and check out. One of our former guests from the show wrote a chapter in this new handbook on the science of early literacy, and I've invited Dr. Shane Piasta back on the show to talk with us about what research says about alphabet instruction and what it means for classroom teachers. Dr. Piasta is a professor of reading and literacy in early and middle childhood in the Department of Teaching and Learning at The Ohio State University. And highlights of the conversation include the importance of alphabet knowledge and what all that entails. We also discuss differences between explicit teaching of the alphabet and teaching within context, as well as exploring various approaches to teaching the alphabet, such as articulatory support, multisensory support, and embedded mnemonics. By the end of the episode, you're going to have a better understanding of alphabet instruction, and hopefully that can inform your practice in the classroom. This is a great episode with a ton of takeaways. Dr. Piasta is very knowledgeable. She's very thoughtful in how she presents and, and lays out the research. I learned a ton from the show. I'm sure you will as well. After the show, make sure to stick around for Jake's take on the conversation. Dr. Shane Piasta, welcome back to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm so glad to be here. We had you on the show not too long ago, episode 37, with Dr. Alita Hudson, where we talked about teacher content knowledge and early literacy instruction. And today we get to do a little bit in a deeper dive in a specific area of early literacy instruction, specifically alphabet instruction. We're talking about a chapter that you wrote today in the new handbook on the science of early literacy. And the chapter is titled... The Science of Early Alphabet Instruction, What We Do and Do Not Know. Before we jump into it, will you just remind folks a little bit of who you are and what your research interests are and specifically how you became interested in alphabet instruction? Sure. So I am a professor at The Ohio State University in the Department of Teaching and Learning and also a faculty associate at the Crane Center for Early Childhood Research and Policy here in Columbus, Ohio. And in terms of my background, my degree is in developmental psychology, but I earned that through a pre-doctoral program sponsored by the Institute of Education Sciences. So my doctoral program really integrated not just fields of psychology, but also education, speech hearing science, education policy, and other areas. And being able to contribute to the scientific research base around early literacy 
has always been my goal as soon as I decided that I wanted to pursue graduate study. So my research areas focus on empirically validating promising practices for supporting children's early literacy and language development. And I define practices very broadly. So I do a lot of testing of curricula and interventions, professional development, which is where the teacher knowledge piece comes into play. And the developmental psychologist in me has been interested in alphabet learning in particular since my graduate school days. So this is such a foundational skill. And I found that there was a real gap in the literature in terms of what we knew about how children developed alphabet knowledge and also what we knew about best supporting that. So what I appreciate when I read your chapter, but then also other research of yours I'm familiar with, is that it has a very pragmatic feel to it. And I think that that background helps illustrate why we need to know cognitive processes that are happening when alphabet is being learned or other things. But there also is the element of how do you teach it? And that's where you sort of bring us to the cusp of here's what we know, here's what we're thinking, and here's maybe areas that we're not so sure of. Mm -hmm. So just to jump in, can you define for us what is alphabet knowledge and give us an idea of why it matters? Of course. So alphabet knowledge is knowledge of letter forms, letter names, and the very basic letter sound correspondences, the types of letter sound correspondences we think about when reading an alphabet book or something like that, like is for cat um, and associated with the letter C. Alphabet knowledge is one of the strongest predictors we have of later literacy success. It's still to be determined the extent to which that is a causal association, right? Because children who have better alphabet knowledge in the preschool and kindergarten year are also likely to be children who have had lots of print exposure and other types of literacy experiences. But it seems logical to assume that given we have an alphabetic language here in English, that children would need to be able to recognize the different letter forms and associate those at least with their sounds. And so that is really the foundation of, and the reason that we have an alphabetic orthography and what allows for things like decoding and invented spelling to take place. So in the sense of that, where it is a very strong predictor of later literacy proficiency, one of the areas of emphasis of alphabet knowledge research is an area that I find is really interesting of different combinations of alphabet knowledge instruction. So is it better to learn letter sound before letter name, or is it better to learn letter name before letter sound? So broadly, what does the research suggest on the sequencing and content of alphabet instruction? And the area we probably have the most converging evidence is about the combination and sequencing of teaching letter names and letter sounds. So there have been a handful of studies on this topic, including some of my own work. And what we have generally found is that children learn what they're taught, right? So if they're taught letter names, they're going to learn letter names. If they're taught letter sounds, they're going to learn letter sounds. There does, however, seem to be an advantage of teaching letter names and letter sounds together. So of the studies that have been conducted, there either have been equivalent findings for teaching names before sounds or vice versa, 
And then in studies that have actually tested in combination versus just letter names or just letter sounds, again, it has been equivalent results in a couple of studies, but other studies have actually found an advantage for that letter name and sound instruction. And so that's the practice that I think at this point would have the most empirical support. So I like that terming of advantage in the sense that learning letter names first isn't necessarily a detriment. It's just that there is a possible advantage or more efficient learning when it is letter sound first. Is that a correct interpretation of the research? Yeah, yes, that's exactly right. Do these outcomes vary for like English monolingual learners versus dual language learners? There have been two studies that I know of to date that have looked at that and looked at it in the sense of including language status as a potential moderator of effects. So do effects differ for a particular population of kids? And neither of those studies, one by Roberts et al. and one by Soman Park, um, neither of those have actually shown any differences for English monolingual learners versus multilingual learners. So that suggests that it may be equally effective for both groups of learners. So then of the three components of alphabet knowledge, you have letter name, letter sound, letter shape. When adults are interacting with kids or with students and teaching them alphabet knowledge, which one of those threes do adults gravitate toward most and why might that matter? So in the United States in particular, because this is actually different if you're in some other countries, but in the U.S., caregivers and teachers tend to talk about letter names the most some attention to letter shapes and the distinction between what is the print on the page versus what is the picture on the page. In work that's analyzed caregiver-child interactions around letters, as well as teacher reports of what they emphasize in their classroom, there's little evidence that letter sounds are emphasized. Although, of course, letter sounds are really that connecting link between knowing the alphabet and being able to start using that for decoding and spelling purposes. We also know that adults tend to talk more about letters that are at the beginning of the alphabet, and they also tend to talk more about letters that are in children's names, which makes a lot of sense, right? Calling their attention to something that the child identifies with, and particularly that first initial of their first name. So this is important because it influences what knowledge children are bringing to the classroom. And that knowledge that each child brings is going to be slightly different. It also provides an explanation as to why letter name in combination with letter sound instruction might be helpful for children in the U.S. in particular, because they might already be familiar with the letter name, or they might be hearing adults refer to the letter name more often than the sound, so they're able to hopefully link those things together. So this really has implications for differentiation of instruction when we think about some kids are going to come and you know, their first initial, there's evidence kids are most likely to know their first initial in their name. And those initials are going to be different for different kids in the classroom. But it also has implications for thinking about not just what the child brings to the classroom, but also what they may not be bringing to the classroom and might need more intensive instruction on. And as part of that, I would call out letter sound instruction. 
So I think this is very interesting because when I read that, I thought, oh yeah, hmm, that kind of describes my experience when I think back. But also when I was preparing the outline for this podcast, I have a little two-year-old daughter at home and I was walking through as she was watching a program and it was, they were doing stuff with letters and I, you know, the record scratch, I stopped it, I turned around and I rewound it a little bit to see, all right, are they doing sound or names first? And mm-hmm. lo and behold, it was names first, but they did do a lot of emphasis on sound after the names. And, and we could conjecture why that's the case. I think that's just a natural inclination when we mm-hmm. read, we treat it as a very visual process, even though there's a lot of auditory aspects to it. But the instructional implications there, I think really, really do matter that if students are knowing you know, the first couple letters of the alphabet, but OPQRST are just kind of a giant schmush in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then the letters of their name, or at least the first initial of their name. If I'm a kindergarten teacher and it's around Labor Day, that's sort of where I'm thinking this is where I'm starting from on the ground up. Um, another question that folks might have is around the order of sequencing. So they're saying, okay, I emphasize letter sound, teaching letter name explicitly and letter shape explicitly. But another question is what order do I teach all these letters? And perhaps we hinted at a few of, you can go straight through alphabetically, A through Z. You can sort of start with the students in your names and their first initials. Um, Cindy Jones and her colleagues proposed six different teaching sequences. Can you give us a drive-through of these six different ways to think about sequencing alphabet instruction? And then maybe thinking about what are the trade-offs between one versus another? Sure. So you've already mentioned two. One of the sequences is based on what we in the field call the first initial advantage, the idea that kids are most likely most familiar with the first initials of their first names. And so the idea here would be to start by teaching all of the initials of kids in the classroom as something that they might easily start understanding the concept of mapping a letter to its name and its sound, and then move on to what might be more difficult letters because they are not necessarily children's initials within that particular classroom. The second one is alphabetic order, so starting with A and going through to Z. The third one is really based on our understanding of what's called the acrophonic principles. So this is the idea that some letters, their names include cues to their sounds. So the letter B, for example, starts with the B sound, whereas the letter F ends with the sound in its name. So F. And then we have other letters like H that are not providing any cues or signals as to what sound they're associated with. So correlational and descriptive research has established that children tend to be most familiar with letters like B, where the sound comes at the beginning of the name. There's kind of mixed evidence then as to whether an advantage holds for letters like F, where the sound is at the end of the name. And both of those tend to be more likely to be known by kids as opposed to letters that don't include any cues to their names. We also know that some letters are associated with multiple sounds, right? So children are often more familiar with letters that are associated with a single sound, so like the letter B. Now, what this sequencing would be then is thinking about starting with letters that follow the acrophonic principle, like B, and that also are associated with fewer letter sounds, and then working your way through 
letters that do not necessarily follow the acrophonic principle, but might be related to only one sound, and then ending with what is proposed to be the most complex, which would be the letters that do not provide cues to their sounds and their names, and also might be associated with multiple sounds. So that's the third sequence that they propose. The fourth sequence is all about letter frequency. So across various alphabetic orthographies, children are more likely to be familiar with letters that show up more frequently in print materials. So the idea here would be to start with letters that are more frequent and more frequently viewed by kids. So for us in the US, those would be like T and N and S, and then move gradually to some of the least frequent letters that children would see in print which would be things like Q and Y. The fifth sequence is about the developmental order in which children are able to produce consonant sounds. So from speech-language pathology, we know that children are physically capable of pronouncing certain consonant sounds earlier in their development than later in their development. You think about letters like N and M and P and those sounds, those are sounds that we even hear when toddlers are babbling, for example, whereas sounds like the R sound or the sh sound, my, my three-year-old niece called me Auntie Sane for the longest time because she literally could not pronounce the sh at the beginning of my name. So with this sequence, again, the idea would be that we would move from those that are acquired earlier in development and thus presumably easier for children to pronounce and thus learn to the ones that are more difficult and come up later in a developmental sequence. And then the last sequence that's proposed is based on the visual features of letters. So when we think about letters, we know that many of the letters look alike and share certain features. So the easiest example would be lowercase p, d, and B. And these are really all kind of like rotations or reversals of each other, but all include kind of that curved feature as well as a straight line. And so in this sequence, what is proposed is that you actually move from letters that share many of these features and teach those kind of almost in a cluster. So you're having children attend to the distinctiveness among similar looking letters, and then moving on to letters where there are fewer shared features of them. Those are the six different sequences that are proposed. I do want to say that although all of these are based on correlational and descriptive evidence we have about what children know about letters and how that develops, we have not had any studies that have actually compared whether one of these teaching sequences is more effective than either typical instruction or another type of sequence. That's something that the field will really need to tackle as we continue to research children's alphabet learning and instructional supports. But there are a number of trade-offs here. For one, these are all meant to be whole class 
instructional sequences, meaning that you're creating a sequence for your entire class to go through. And so the idea that children are bringing knowledge about letters to the classroom is most evident in the sequence with the first initial advantage, but it's not clear that would be beneficial for all students in the classroom because not all students are going to have the same initial. And so what might be easy for one kid might be really, really challenging for another kid. Other trade-offs are things like the fact that what we know about letters and letter features all kind of play together. So although there are definitely advantages and disadvantages for thinking about how similarly shaped letters are or whether or not they follow the acrophonic principle or how frequent they are in print, these are not isolated items. They all work together such that we can specify kind of a developmental continuum of the difficulty that children experience when learning letters. So there might be a way there to put all of those things together. And then I think one of the things that isn't explicit in these sequences, but is implicit, is that different letters, because of those distinguishing features or how the interplay works among letter features, might require more intensity than other letters. And so I do think that that is perhaps implied in these sequences, but children will likely need much more intensive instruction in learning the letter W than in learning the letter B. So I think these could all be starting points. We certainly need to do research on them, but I think there are some other things that we need to be taking into consideration when we do think about the sequence with which we would teach letters. Yeah, I think this idea of having, you know, different orders to teach letters is really fascinating. And I think broadly, it's sort of asking this question of what are students currently existing funds of knowledge and which ones are they going to be the most efficient to tap into, to build off of, to get a set of consonants and vowels to be able to begin applying those in print. So thinking that the order that they develop the sounds in, so those letters will be more easily learned or the acrophonic principle of, you know, then the letter name and letter sound are very similar that those might be easier. But I think that is an important distinguishment to say that there isn't a sort of this is the one set scope and sequence that has been defined by research that there's more work to be done in that area. This is a question that I didn't put on the the outline, so I hope you're okay with me putting you on the spot, but sort of the current conversation around early literacy nationwide has a lot to do with curriculum and what curricula is really going to best support students. So when you're looking at modern curriculum, is there one of those that you feel that you've seen consistently across curriculum, or do you sort of see a variation of how different curricula are introducing letter names? I think there's a lot of variety. One sequence that I do tend to see is teaching letters that will be most helpful for decoding and spelling first so that children can start applying their knowledge of the letters. Of course, this is more kindergarten level than the preschool level, but for example, teaching B and I and T and S because then you can begin using those letters and their corresponding sounds to build words or decode words. So that is something that I do see frequently. Other than that, I think 
there's just lots of variability and sometimes there's an explanation for the order and sometimes there is no explanation for the order. So it's kind of hard to tell what curriculum developers are thinking when they are putting forth the sequence that they prefer. So that might be something for teachers to be aware of is in some places, if the curriculum that you have is your set order that you're teaching your letters and taking a look at that and then evaluating, well, you know, of those six, is there one that it's sort of clearly aligning with? And then, you know, are there adjustments that might need to be made to perhaps make it more efficient Mm -hmm. um, for your learners? And uh, with those six teaching sequences, I just need to give a shout out to Dr. Cindy Jones. Her and her colleagues were sort of the ones that fleshed out those six and she was on my dissertation committee. So that article is one of the first ones I read when I started my doc program. And it's been really influential for a long time for me. So glad to be able to talk about it on the show. Let's move from sequencing or the order that we might teach the letters into pacing and then volume of instruction of how much. A common sort of the quote unquote old school approach is more of a letter a week approach. So you're focusing on one letter for an entire week, takes you 26 weeks. So if you start early September, by mid-March, you've got all the letters in kindergarten that have been taught. What does research indicate about this approach and what alternate approaches might be more effective? So there are very few studies out there actually directly comparing letter of the week to a different pacing. Actually, Cindy Jones has a study where they did a quasi-experimental research study and tested some of their sequences. They didn't distinguish among them, but some of their sequences in doing that as a letter per day plus review opportunities versus the typical practice that had been used in the schools they were working with, which was a letter of the week approach. So almost by default, they they tested a little bit of this. What they found was that children who used the sequences and had a quicker pace of letter introduction along with review were more likely to meet end-of-year letter naming fluency benchmarks than those who were in that letter of the week or typical instruction condition. Now, I will say that study was really kind of a pilot study. There are some design issues that make us a little less confident in those results, but then we can combine that with other studies. For example, there have been two further studies, one experimental in which they tested teaching two to four letters per week versus only one to three letters per week. And this was with kindergartners and first graders. And they found that the quicker pacing of two to four a week was more beneficial for letter sound outcomes than the slower pacing. And then there's a study that took place in Norway, and this was kind of almost a natural experiment. So technically, we should think about this as correlational, but it was rather well designed. And what they did was they actually had teachers report when they finished teaching all the letters. So some teachers got in there and had that done within the first couple of months of school. Some teachers, it took half a year. Some teachers, it took the whole year. And what they found was that the students who were introduced to the letters more quickly and had finished learning about the full complement of letters, they had higher letter sound knowledge, they had better reading outcomes, and they had better spelling outcomes. So of course, we do have to think about selection biases and confounds in that given the design of the study. But it does seem like 
these studies are converging on the idea that children are both capable of learning about letters at a quicker pace than letter of the week, and also that there may be some benefits to doing that. And so what I would add to this would be two points. One, teachers are teaching so many different topics in their classrooms and covering so many different domains, especially in preschool and kindergarten, where they are kind of wearing all of the hats. And so what I think about is how can we ensure that alphabet instruction is not just effective, but also efficient? Because we don't need to be spending an entire circle time teaching a letter. I think the evidence is pretty clear on that. And instead, we could be doing more effective, more efficient instruction on the alphabet, which opens up more instructional time to focus on other important components like language, like, you know, math and science, other things like that. And then the second point I would make is that we do have a pretty strong evidence base that there are differences among children in what they bring to the task of letter learning and differences among letters and how difficult they are to learn. So a letter of the week approach really assumes that children are all going to follow the same sequence and each letter is going to receive the same intensity of instruction. And that does not seem to align with the work that's been done to date. So there's a couple themes there that you brought out, one of effective and and efficient. And I think that's a common theme that runs in the background of this podcast of almost, you know, effective is great, but a lot of times it's not enough to be effective. We have to be Mm -hmm. effective and efficient, learning in a time efficient manner. But another theme that sort of lurks in the background often on the podcast is this idea of consolidated practice versus Mm -hmm. distributed practice. And, And I think alphabet knowledge is really really clear way to lay out the design of those principles of consolidated practice being learning or mass practice, learning something really deeply in one single chunk and then moving on. And then with only like light, perhaps power review, whereas a distributed practice being, you know, letter a day approach where the students might not learn a letter for an entire week, but they're going to learn a new letter every day, but then they're going to get cycles of instruction throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And the same thinking with The pacing study that you mentioned of two or three days on a letter versus three to five days on a letter. And that I think is something worth evaluating in the classroom. Not every letter is probably going to need the same volume of instruction. So contingency, right, that we're providing Mm -hmm. students the level and the degree of support that they need, but also thinking of, is it better to move through letters more quickly so you have more time for spot review versus, you know, you can get more letters under the kid's belt at more of a surface level, and then you have more time to go deeper. And as you point out, you know, there's there's very limited research in this area, but sort of a direction, it sounds like pointing towards more of a distributed practice approach. And when I've worked with teachers, I've sort of seen the spectrum. I've seen letter a week. I've seen letter a day. I've seen sort of a hybrid of we're focusing on one specific letter this week, but then we're doing quick alphabet letter review every mm-hmm. day to kind of complement it. And I think where the research isn't sort of clear cut in this area, perhaps recommending to teachers of a contingency on student data of what do your students know, what do they need to know, and trying to be responsive to that. And in the meantime, while research is hopefully clarifying those different perspectives. Yeah. And I think, you know, leaning on data, that is an additional piece here is being able to monitor and assess 
what children know and what they have learned about letters and really using that in a very intentional way to inform your instruction. Yeah, absolutely. Which sort of brings us to the, as we're kind of making this fun, we've talked about the order of teaching letters and then the pacing, but as far as instruction, how do you teach it? Two common approaches for alphabet instruction are one, just explicitly teaching letter name, letter sound, letter shape, and another one, you know, teaching in context when it comes up in text or sort of impromptu opportunities for bringing out the letter instruction. Um, What does research indicate on these approaches? Taking the more implicit approach, the teaching in context first. So there there are studies that show evidence that using things like print referencing, for example, pausing as you're reading a book and calling attention to a specific letter or a specific word or things like that, those compared to a business as usual control condition can show boosts in children's alphabet learning. Now, there's been more recent work that has actually directly tested the teaching um, explicitly and in isolation versus teaching in context or implicitly. And so there's only one study on this, but it was a very rigorously designed study And they found that teaching using a paired associate learning type of paradigm, which means that children are being given opportunities to see the letter, hear its name, hear its sound, and then they have opportunities to provide the name and sound when seeing the letter, that that was actually more beneficial than when letters were taught in context. So in the context of shared book reading, in the context of frequently being within children's names and things like that. So it seems to suggest that the more explicit teaching is more effective than teaching in context. And other studies, again, haven't directly tested this, but often studies that have used an explicit approach are comparing two typical instruction where it is more of a teaching in context approach perhaps. And so those studies have also shown benefits of explicitly teaching letters over studies, I'm sorry, over instruction that have taken a more implicit approach. So then with that of perhaps research pointing in a direction more towards explicit instruction, another conversation that's a really hot topic right now is phonemic awareness instruction and combining alphabet knowledge instruction with phonemic awareness instruction. What does the available research indicate on whether combining alphabet instruction with phonemic awareness instruction, does it benefit alphabet knowledge? Does it benefit phonemic awareness? Does it benefit both or neither? Can you walk us through some of the research on that? Sure. The reciprocal relation between alphabet knowledge and phonemic awareness is pretty well established in developmental and correlational work. So this idea that these are developing a conjunction with each other and kind of feeding off each other apply that perhaps teaching them both simultaneously would benefit learning of both alphabet knowledge and PA. The evidence is pretty strong that teaching phonemic awareness along with letters benefits children's PA learning. So that is very, very clear. There is 
not necessarily evidence that teaching PA with alphabet knowledge benefits alphabet learning. So what I would say here as an instructional implication is that we definitely need to be teaching alphabet knowledge explicitly, as we just discussed, but we can do that in conjunction with phonemic awareness instruction as well, and that will benefit children's phonemic awareness learning. That might be the ideal condition where you are making sure that your combined instruction would also explicitly attend to benefiting alphabet knowledge. So there's no evidence that teaching alphabet knowledge and PA together has any detriments for alphabet knowledge, just not any solid evidence that it also improves it. So in a sense, we can think about it as killing two birds with one stone, right? That if you're combining those two, because they are so reciprocally related, that there's going to be added benefit. But I think it's really important for us to think through what you just mentioned, that the benefit is going to come in on the phonemic awareness side, that that's going to enhance and accelerate phonemic awareness proficiency, but not necessarily the alphabet knowledge proficiency, which isn't a bad thing, but I think that is worth knowing. It's not that it's improving both indefinitely, but that it is going to, it enhances phonemic awareness, which which really to me makes a lot of sense that if I'm adding in phonemic mm -hmm. awareness, it's going to benefit phonemic awareness. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate being able to sort of parse some of the nuance there because there's in all research, there's a lot of nuance and sometimes it's hard to unpack in the implications of it. There's a litany of other common approaches, teachers using mirrors and using shaving cream on desks and those type of things that are supporting like articulatory awareness, multi-sensory approaches, embedded mnemonics. Would you just give a drive-through of sort of these other sort of auxiliary practices and what research indicates about the effectiveness of these? Sure. So for things like articulatory awareness, this would be embedding instruction in how the mouth moves, how the vocal cords vibrate, how the sound is being produced in conjunction with teaching letter sounds. And so there have been studies showing that adding an articulatory awareness component can benefit things like phonemic awareness and may actually benefit even reading and spelling. However, when we look specifically at whether it benefits alphabet learning, we do not have a lot of studies tackling that. So I know of only one study to date that has specifically compared alphabet instruction with articulatory awareness practices and alphabet instruction without that component, but everything else was the same, which is important for drawing conclusions about one specific piece of the instruction. And in that study, they did not find any benefit of adding the articulatory awareness to alphabet instruction on alphabet outcomes. The idea of multisensory approaches, again, this is something that is very common practice. And some would argue that there have been a number of studies of multisensory approaches. I would add the nuance that most of those studies have compared a multisensory approach to typical instruction. So again, if we really want to know if the multisensory approach is more effective than a non-multisensory approach, we actually have to do basically the same instruction just with and without the multisensory components. And there's very little research that has done that. I mean, Park actually recently completed her dissertation where she did look at 
equated instruction that was multisensory, non-multisensory, and then she also had kind of typical instruction as another condition. And she did not find any differences between the multisensory and non-multisensory approach on children's alphabet outcomes. She's actually working on getting that paper published right now. And then the last one you mentioned was embedded mnemonics. And here's where we do have a positive story. So embedded mnemonics are ways of signaling the sound of the letter by embedding some sort of picture that uses the letter shape. So if you can think about the letter S, maybe you have the letter S and it looks like a snake and that's helping children to associate the letter S with the sound. These approaches have been tested rigorously in a couple of studies, and in terms of embedded mnemonics, these have been shown to be beneficial for kids' alphabet learning. I think the, the added benefit of multisensory instruction is still kind of on the table, but I'm very confident in recommending embedded mnemonics as something to add into instruction that could benefit learning. So just to recap there, so our articulatory awareness, not necessarily benefit in alphabet knowledge, but again, perhaps benefit in the phonemic awareness realm, which is again, important for teachers to understand that if I've got a group that really needs some strong support in phonemic awareness, that's when I might provide that. Mm -hmm. But if things are cruising in that area and they're good, I might not for sake of time and efficiency. Multi-sensory approaches, no added benefit, but perhaps no detriment either is what it mm -hmm. sounds like in, in where the research is at there. But embedded mnemonics, a yes, that when making the S look like a snake and using that as a mnemonic for the students to learn, it does have some, some benefit. And sometimes when I get done reading a whole bunch of research, I feel like, ah, do we know anything? Because there's so <laughs> much, I mean, it's there's nuance, there's argument and there's counter argument, but there's a consensus that builds over time. So let's spend a minute and kind of tie all this together. If you were talking with a group of teachers right now, what would you recommend on just your approach to how you would recommend teaching students the alphabet? Sure. So I think the areas where we have converging evidence are really the idea of teaching letter names and letter sounds together taking an explicit approach that features many opportunities for children to see and hear and say the letter form as associated with its name and sound, using embedded mnemonics, and potentially quicker pacing than letter of the week, as well as differentiating based on both what children are bringing with them to the classroom, as well as the features that differ among letters. I think those are the areas where we're starting to have converging evidence. The last two, the pacing, I think we need more evidence. And the differentiation is something where we're working on testing right now. Wonderful. As far as evaluating or assessing where students are at with their alphabet knowledge, do you recommend just a phonics survey or how does a teacher really accurately acquire this is what my students know in the alphabet, this is what they do not know? One way I would not recommend testing this is asking them to say their ABCs. So I've come across many situations where I'm screening for children that need extra alphabet support. And I, you know, ask teachers and they're like, yep, they've got it all down. But when you do it in a random order, it's clear that they haven't quite mastered things. So I would not recommend asking children to display their knowledge of the alphabet in ABC order. 
I think other formal and informal means of assessing are just fine. So there are letter sound short forms that have been developed by myself and others. There are letter name short forms that have been developed by a team out of Michigan State. These are actually available on the web, and I can share a link with you where I've kind of compiled this. I think those are great, and they have been developed in a way that can, even though not every letter is assessed, the teacher can estimate how many of 26 letters the child would know. So that can be helpful. But what we're really wanting to know is which specific letters do each kids know and do they need more help with? And so even doing informal assessment, particularly when you've been teaching certain letters, I think, you know, just even taking a moment in the classroom to point out a letter and asking, do you know what that letter name is? Do you know what that letter sound is? That can help teachers in terms of planning for instruction and knowing whether they need to provide some more intensity on a certain letter because it is just not, the mastery level is just not there yet, or if they are ready to move on to something new because the children have already mastered a particular letter. And when I'm talking about this kind of differentiated instruction as linked to assessment, I also want us to think about teaching letters in ways other than whole class forms, right? So if we're going to take what children bring to the classroom into account, what they already know and can do, and then different letter features, then we need to start thinking about providing small group instruction or other forms of instruction on letters to best meet the needs of each child in the classroom. I think that's really helpful. And yes, if you have a link, I'd love to share it in the show notes for the alphabet short forms. And then what would you recommend for teachers working with an established curriculum where they're not sort of creating their alphabet instruction from scratch, but they have materials that have been given to them that are, this is how you teach it. How, what recommendations would you give around that? I would start by inventorying what the materials are, what the sequence that's recommended is, if there is one, and seeing where the places might be that you can use those materials, but do so in a way that is more aligned with what research is suggesting. So if, for example, there's a set sequence maybe thinking about the pacing and intensity within that sequence so that you're providing more instruction on letters that children are finding more difficult and really just reviewing those that children already know. If the pacing is established, maybe the sequence isn't established. And so you can think about adjusting the sequence for kids. I think there are probably tweaks in there, such as if it teaches letter sound and letter names first, starting to incorporate letter sounds earlier than simply going through all letter names and then coming back to all letter sounds. So I would look for the places where you have the knowledge and the ability to tweak those curricula to better align with what we're learning from science. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Shane Piasta, it's been a joy having you on the podcast. Final question for you, what makes a good teacher? So my answer is going to be similar to what I have said when you've asked me this question before, but more specific to alphabet knowledge. I think a good teacher is intentional in both planning and implementing alphabet instruction that best meets the needs of the students in their classroom. 
I think a good teacher is one who ensures that their instruction is effective, efficient, and also engaging, right? Learning the alphabet does not mean flashcards necessarily. And a good teacher is one who is using research to guide their practice to the best of their ability, as we just talked about. So integrating established evidence-based practices and findings from science and considering research-based suggestions when they are planning and implementing their alphabet instruction. Wonderful. Dr. Shane Piasta, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. A great big thanks, Dr. Shane Piasta, for joining us on the show I have a couple quick takeaways from my my time talking with Dr. Piasta. My first big takeaway really has to do again with that idea of consolidated practice versus distributed practice and how that really is a key pedagogical consideration that I, I think bears evaluation in really everything that's being taught in the literacy realm. You know, sometimes we feel like we have to just hit something really hard to make sure that our kiddos are getting it. But at the same time, I think it's important to remember that, you know, if if I'm a kindergarten teacher or a fourth grade teacher, I also have those students for 180 days worth of instruction. And knowing that learning, and especially learning that's interdependent with other variables, does take time. And being willing to be more responsive with a distributed dose of instruction that can become a little bit more rigorous each time versus just a straight consolidated dose of I'm going to teach this one thing and drop everything else until my students get it, I think has a lot of important implications for in the classroom. My other big takeaway is around this idea of research. What I appreciate about Dr. Piasta is she does a great job at really parsing out some of the nuance of research, and sometimes that can be uncomfortable. I've been a letter a day fan. I've read that very early in my endeavors learning to be a reading researcher. But we have limited studies on that. And there are methodological limitations to the way that the study was designed. And so what I appreciate is she was able to say, this is where the evidence is overall pointing. But, you know, there's many, many areas within literacy research where there's definitely a compass heading, there's a direction, but sometimes the science isn't as rock solid. We have hundreds of studies on X or hundreds of studies on Y. Sometimes it's not as established as some folks communicate that it is. For me, that's the mark of someone that I want to listen to is someone that I don't have to take their word for it, but someone that can really parse out and say, this is what we know with certainty. This is what direction that we think this research is heading, and these are areas where we really don't know very much about it overall. And I know that when I have found someone like that, that I can really trust what they are saying, and then I can make my own decisions within where that knowledge is, rather than just relying on someone to give it to me, cut and dry, black and white, because in my experience reading research so many times, there's always nuance to it. There's always nuance. And being willing to accept some gray space and unpack that nuance is, I think, a very wise approach for practitioners, for administrators, and then also for literacy researchers, because sometimes researchers can also be unwilling to unpack some of the nuance. 
that's all I've got on the show for you today. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast, please share it with a friend. That's the number one way that this podcast continues to grow and lets me know that you appreciate hearing from literacy researchers who can unpack some of the nuance and talk through things. Until next time, this is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Let's go out and teach reading just a little bit better.